0: Hello and welcome to the November edition of Rich Pickings, Videlity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and today I've come out for a breath of fresh air after an intense recording. We covered Brexit, why it matters and why it doesn't, China, which everyone agreed does matter, and whether it's time to buy on the dips or sell at the peaks. Listen on to find out more. Well, now, here with me in the studio are our multi-asset team, fresh from their monthly asset allocation group meetings. First of all, Charlotte Harrington, markets analyst. Charlotte, before we delve into investment, this month's interesting question, what is your favorite word in the English language?
1: I quite like the word hippopotamus. It just sounds nice. <laughs> I like
0: that. Okay, jolly good. Uh, with Charlotte is portfolio manager Nick Peters. Nick, welcome to Rich Pickings. Um, what's the word that you hold in highest regard?
2: Well, I wouldn't say highest regard, but I like the word rapscallion. Rapscallion. It sounds just what it means.
0: Yes, it does. Another one. Uh, jolly good. And finally, James Bateman, Chief Investment Officer of Razzie Asset. James, give us your favourite, more juste, but in English,
3: please. Um, I think I'm going to have to go with interregnum, both because it's, a, it's a, I think, quite a beautiful word to say but also um, it's this wonderful concept of two, two periods of continuity and stability with that instability in between. Uh, any parallels you'd like to draw? You might suggest the current British um, political situation inspired me to that word, but I wouldn't like to comment. Well, we may come
0: to that later on in the programme. But uh, thank you all and welcome. Uh, James, uh, let's get to the um, to the decisions of the group. Um, how has the positioning of the asset allocation
3: group changed? Well, the good news, Richard, is the positioning has changed, so we have something exciting to talk about. Indeed we do. Perhaps the less exciting thing at, at headline level is we are now neutral equities, neutral fixed income and neutral cash. This needs some explanation. You're neutral everything. We are at neutral, all the asset classes. And I, and I think, you know, what we have to think about is, is one, we're in a period of, of heightened volatility and therefore actually not having active positions can sometimes be the right thing to do. But I think, secondly, you have to position that in a... In a, in a sort of trajectory of moves that for a long time we've been underweight fixed income and overweight cash and actually we're in the process of reversing that positioning Um, so I suspect next month or the month after at some point you're going to see us overweight fixed income and underweight cash and we're just gradually moving through neutrality to get there.
0: So this is... uh partly transitory, but it's also a position of safety when you look around you at I'd trans- everything that's going on. say
3: transitory and prudence combined. You know, Prudence says in a, in a period of, of high d- intraday volatility, don't take, suddenly take big positions because hour by hour your positioning could be caught out quite badly and therefore the timing of any big move is, could be painful. So prudence says don't take big positions, don't make a big move at the moment but it is definitely transitory in the sense that we are moving in a direction of saying we're late, in fact we're very late cycle that means increased fixed income.
0: Okay. Now, what about your regional allocations? Because you've made a change there as well. We
3: have, Richard. Just one change. Um, and, and that might seem um, perverse to, to, to people listening. But, but we've gone neutral from underweight UK. And we've replaced that with a, a, a underweight to um, Europe x UK maintaining the overweight to Japan. Um, why have we done that? Simply, we don't have any insights on Brexit. That's point one. We don't. We can debate it forever. Um, we do debate it forever, I can assure you. It's, it's, great it's, fun. The, it's the topic of, of the day, every day at the moment. However, Do we think we have an an advantage versus the market on on understanding what's going to happen and the potential outcomes? No, we don't. Secondly, I think you can actually construct multiple arguments in which the UK market could rally from here. You know, One is it's cheap, but but park that for a minute. Um, Hard Brexit, catastrophic situation, currency collapses. Currency collapse, people move into the market, market rallies. We know there's a lot of money, international money not moving in, not buying in the UK at the moment, so that could happen. Conversely, A deal is probably a soft but not major rally in the currency. There's a lot more stability. People think, oh, UK looks cheap, and they move in. So I think there are two reasons why being underweight the UK could be actually quite painful in the short to medium term. And therefore, again, as a matter of prudence, we've neutralised that position. Conversely, we are concerned or more concerned about Europe. And and my my key message when you think about Europe as a a region is Brexit almost is a footnote on the problems in Europe at the moment. If you look at Italy, the budget situation, Situation, you look at um, Merkel's succession, you look at the change in um, leadership of the ECB coming. Um, all of those things really worry us. And so there's so many reasons why you should be worried about Europe that we think the risk for any one of those becoming, a, a at least for a short time, a, a reason for a, a sell-off in caused by sentiment in, in Europe are high. And therefore, an underweight there seems prudent.
0: Okay. Uh, Nick, let me come to you because you were nodding uh, with great conviction around the um, the move to neutral in the UK. Well,
2: no, it, the nodding actually started at the multi asset. Well, was it nodding? But basically, on the equity side, yeah, what I've been what I've done in my funds very recently is added is actually add to equities because sentiment is so oversold that I do wonder whether we could see a rally into the year end. James mentioned valuations and if you if you um, look at Um, situation excluding the US, then the major markets are trading on about 13 times next year. And if growth, um, and perhaps it's a big if, if growth is okay, reasonable for the next six to 12 months, then perhaps you could actually see a rally in equities on the back of those valuations. And so, I I just felt that given that sentiment was so negative, this could well be an opportunity to make some money.
0: And Charlotte, um, you had some differing views on fixed income. You weren't happy with a neutral everything on the, uh, the, the asset classes.
1: So I guess some of this sort of um, depends on your starting position. So it's um, I've been a little bit more negative on risk assets ahead of this meeting uh, and a little bit more positive on, on government bonds and, and haven't really changed that view. I have a lot of sympathy with the uh, the point that Nick's raised around uh, sentiment on a very short-term basis being quite o- oversold. And I would see that as an opportunity because of where I started from to cover a bit of that short but to still stay underweight because I do think that uh, the, the growth backdrop that we're looking at is um, is, is vulnerable to, to slowing again. And the technical signals that we're getting, certainly from from the models, are pretty mixed. On a short-term basis, you're, you're inclined to think markets could bounce, but uh, longer-term momentum signals are quite negative for risk assets and, and, and supportive of bonds.
0: And James has talked quite a bit there about um, uh, Brexit, uh, but to what extent is Brexit weighing on the minds of the, the group generally, do you think?
1: I think it's a mix. So broadly, people are, uh, I think it's fair to say, happy to to not take a strong view because, because things are so in flux. You know, I think as this is so changeable, and it, uh, what I say now will probably be outdated by the end of this podcast. That said... You know, you're working with probabilities here and you're thinking about um, to, to, to say what, what Theresa May is saying you know, this deal, no deal or no Brexit is how she's thinking about it and so you need to put probabilities on those and, and trade around that so um, my own sense is that uh, markets are underestimating the probability of a no deal that's not to say that I think that no deal is the base case it just says that I think the markets have underappreciated it uh, so the question for me as someone who has been more negative on, on UK is when do you start to close that short because you think the market has started to appreciate it. Now uh, we can debate that probably for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: although uh, who, who knows who will be the prime minister by the end of this podcast? It's all <laughs> happening as we uh, as we sit here in the in the studio. Um, Nick, um, do you have a base case around uh, Brexit?
2: So for. When, I, when looking at decisions, I think you know, I start with valuations. And the UK market does look cheap. When I meet fund managers, they, they talk about both large cap and now smaller cap stocks being as cheap as they've seen for years. Um, and therefore... But, I mean, there may be a reason for that. <laughs> there is. But at some point, you start looking at the upside downside for a, a particular company in terms of valuation and earnings. And they're literally pricing in... I wouldn't say Armageddon, but certainly recession levels. Um, And when they start pricing in that sort of um, outcome then you kind of think enough's enough. And, and so I don't have a bet. I'm neutral. But you know, if it gets worse, it's definitely time to go overweight. Interesting. OK,
0: so it's uh, clearly at the front of people's minds here in London, Brexit colouring things. Um, but are we in a bit of a bubble as we sit around this table here? Well, earlier I caught up with George Sothopoulos, a portfolio manager normally based in Hong Kong, although he's here in London for a couple of days. And here's what he had to say. George as we sit here recording this um, I can see a TV screen behind you that's got Sky News running blanket coverage of uh, Brexit and Prime Minister May is giving a statement to the uh, to the House of Commons it's consuming attention here in the UK you're based in Hong Kong how worried are people in Asia uh, about Brexit
4: I would have to say a lot less worried than my colleagues in in London in the London office and we recently had uh, a sort of a lengthy talk discussion about Brexit I didn't contribute much other than saying that I've been having a lot of meetings with clients and investors in the past two years all around Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore and many other places. They have never asked me about Brexit.
0: So it's a a very domestic political um, issue or certainly that's the way that it's playing out at the moment and everyone's looking at uh, how the government, uh, the stability of the government even. But from an investment point of view, it could still have ramifications, couldn't it? It could be the sort of trigger that, that, that might uh, send shockwaves around markets.
4: For sure. Uh, we you know, the, the, the potentially, Currently, there are a lot of things that can actually go wrong. This is potentially one of them that could trigger um, um, a sell-off across market. That is a possibility. We did see that happen on the back of the referendum two years ago or so. Um, so, yes, it can happen. But um, the way I, I would approach that sort of scenario, if it was to materialise, is that I would look at other areas that would have sold off as a result, that would have impacted as a result of um, Brexit risk-off, global risk-off, and actually that would create pretty interesting buying opportunities.
0: Okay, you're a glass-half-full kind of guy. Um, However, you said there are lots of other things um, that could be uh, what trigger um, a risk-off situation. What sort of things should we be worried about um, instead if not Brexit?
4: More aggressive rate normalization in the. US, especially one that's driven by real rates rising. I think that's been a key element uh, for, for market worries today. and I guess you know I do live in in, in Asia. China slow down um, continues. We have to keep monitoring. Um, how much uh, further this goes and to what extent there's some sort of uh, further easing policy that is a bit more meaningful for for global markets.
0: Suddenly my glass is half empty again. George, (laughs) thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Now, Charlotte, I'm not sure you agreed listening to that with George that um, Brexit wasn't meaningful for markets.
1: I think George is definitely a glass half full person. Uh, I slightly wonder whether actually the interpretation of uh, the fact that Asian clients aren't focused on on the UK is, is somewhat part of the issue, which is that actually... Uh, when things do start to go wrong, people people's positioning is actually much lighter than we think because we're so sort of surrounded by Brexit, we think everyone's underweight. Actually, some people haven't really thought about it that much and, and maybe that is all still to come. Uh, so I'm probably being a bit more glass half empty. Then. You're shattering the glass. That's I'm what you're
0: doing. The,
2: <laughs> so the, the, the point I made it the other day was that uh, probably the UK and Brexit is not something that's going to worry global investors. But actually, if the UK had turned... Uh, Turned around with a, a successful deal, then the impact that would have had on Europe would have been something worth worrying about, because populist parties would then have had a, a, a catalyst to really step up and put pressure on the Commission and pulling out of Europe and the Euro and the implications that would have had. But I think that doesn't you know, look likely at the moment. We've been so stitched up that I think that it's uh, it's very difficult to see anybody else wanting to join us
0: no comment okay i 'm going to come to james on uh the china um aspect of uh, of what I, what George was talking about um about the chinese government's willingness to provide stimulus um if and when
3: it's needed how How likely is that what are you hearing you know, Richard, I think that's a hard one because the Chinese government has always been willing to, shall we say, manage the economy and has actually done so quite prudently. I think, you know, my, my m- there are two concerns I have there. One is um, the impact of stimulus, i.e. whether it actually transmits through effectively or whether, uh, for a variety of reasons, tr- um, transmission isn't isn't as the government expects, i.e. they try to stimulate and, and you see a small impact. The second thing that worries me, perhaps is bigger, is I think given the global economic context, given the fact we've had a t- 10 years of expansion... I do wonder whether China's thinking, you know, the, the 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 risks to overheat are so much greater than the risks to slow down. And Chinese growth is still great versus most of the world and is going to remain it probably you know do, how much do they really need to do um, if we look at you know still look back you know a few years ago at the, the last five-year Congress you know the, the, the whole message was we want to slow growth and redistribute income more effectively between urban and rural they're so early in doing that you know that there's so much more to do and, and that is actually about slowing aggregate growth so um, I'm not as convinced as, as some people that the government wants to sort of take too many steps to, to, to boost growth from here. Well, Charlotte, um, one of your colleagues has just come back from uh, a trip to China where
0: he was impressed, I think, by how downbeat the people were that he spoke to.
1: Yes, no, and it's actually really great to have had him there and come back and uh, This is Ian uh, Sampson, we This say. is Ian Sampson. Um, and I won't front run all his conclusions because I know he's in the midst of writing it all up, but... Um, I think broadly as a sort of um, how, how we'd look at the, the Chinese data and, and, and overlaying that with the sentiment that he's come back with uh, is that, yes, over very recent weeks, you've seen some stabilisation in in infrastructure, uh, but private consumption and real estate is is likely slowing and continuing to slow very weak retail sales. About a third of retail sales is vehicle sales, so it does come back to that kind of global car sale um, slowdown that we've been talking about. And also, you have to remember that exports are likely to soften a little bit as some of these um, tariffs start to kick in and that kind of front running fades out. So, uh, very hard to call the bottom in Chinese growth here, I think, whether we we have got to a point of a bit of stabilization which then reaccelerates so it is i think quite quite possible and then going back to to, to Ian's feelings having having come back from from china you know lo- the locals in china are very pessimistic you know they, they they think Chinese growth is slowing and that policymakers are not yet in a place that they are really ready to, to do any kind of big bang stimulus. And
0: it might be that sentiment combined with the perception of the, um, the, the authorities in China that actually feeds through into a slowdown, a further slowdown in the economy.
1: It could do. And, and, and ultimately, you know, maybe there, there, there probably is a point at which the, the policymakers um, do, do respond in a more meaningful way, But but it doesn't feel like we're there yet.
0: So taking this out of the, the individual countries, China, the UK, whatever, there are lots of reasons to be pessimistic. Um, but James, uh, you're sort of um, giving uh, signals that um, uh, you know when you're talking about UK shares being undervalued, NICU as well, wh- what are we? Are we a, a buy on the dips or a sell uh, on the peaks?
3: Well, I think as a, as, a, as a group, we haven't agreed that. And I think there's the, there are differences between different PMs. And I think part of that might be time horizon. You know, I'm not convinced in the next two or three weeks, we're going to see a, a breakout upwards in markets. But what does worry me is this, this idea that the average professional investor is, is bearish and the average professional investor is worrying about um, the fact we're at the end of the cycle and markets have a tendency to have a last hurrah that people miss out on. They can be quite major in terms of upside. And you know, whilst we have to be prudent and not take too much risk, I am aware that a, you know what I still think is probably an early next year scenario of a 10 or 20% up move in, in, in equities is it's not my base case by any means, but it's a possibility and one I don't want to bet too strongly against. I, I, and that would be the moment that you know that, that, that it's game over for this cycle.
1: This is something that I think is, a, as James said, a very ongoing debate and you look back at through history and you, you sort of um, make, make some comparisons. And one of those could be the the Asian crisis where actually around LTCM, the Fed having started to hike, they cut rates 75 basis points and you got a two-year rally in equities. So um, it's uh, you know these, it's very hard to lay out exactly what you think is going to happen, but you have to be aware of all these sort of scenarios that could play out and could alter your thinking.
2: You're poised to leap whichever way. Nick? Um, so I, I think it's very difficult at the multi-asset level. But then if you look at certain asset classes, else is there is definitely value. So we've been buying into Asia high yield uh, emerging market debt because when, you know, when you've got yields of 7 or 8%, that's a great starting point. And within equities, I still like Jap- Japanese equities because there I think there's a, there's, a, there's a good micro and macro story.
0: James, you had an interesting idea about hedge funds and how they've been performing
3: and what they might do next. Yes, yeah, so, so one of the things that struck me when you look at the data in October... Um, and this has been much talked about, is um, hedge funds, long short funds, typically, have had anything that's probably broadly market-neutral, had a pretty shocking October. And why did they have a pretty shocking October? Because what, what transpired, looking at them, is for the last year or two, they've been very long U.S. tech. Um, either individual names or the sector and so they weren't really non-directional they were taking a big directional bet and they've had a big loss from that they need to make that loss back and they're not going to make that loss back by not having positions on so one of my 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 kind of questions is whether you're going to see a weight of money from from hedge funds throwing itself into an area of the market and that demand just pushing it up and and i do wonder whether that's going to be u.s value or value more more generally but i think there is at least an area of the market you could just see this slew of money coming in rapidly okay we're almost out of time. So I'm
0: excited to announce that it's now uh, our time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? And what would you drop like a hot potato? Charlotte, let's come to you. What's your hot cakes, please?
1: I'm going to stick with the government bond view that I outlined earlier. I think that the US is more likely to slow than accelerate here. Yes, I know that su- supply is a headwind, but I think ultimately real yields probably, probably do fall in that environment. And at the same time, you've had an easing in inflation pressures, at, at least at the margin, uh, off the back of a pretty significant move in oil. You know, I think that's a relatively asymmetric um, position at this stage. And your hot uh, potato? My hot potato, and this might have been used before, but still like it, is, is short Korean one. It's a play on that China slowdown theme. It's also a play on the, the, the weakness that we're seeing in the semiconductor space. Um, and so I quite like that. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Nick, your hot cake please so hot cake uh, well I mentioned Asia high yield but I also mentioned financials which is generally generally yeah global particularly Europe and Japan look very cheap indeed
0: and that's the that's the attraction it's the valuation unloved financials aren't they always and your
2: (laughs) your hot potato so I'm going to go for the US dollar um, just, uh, you know, it on our work, fundamentally, it looks expensive. Any signs of the U.S. slowing, and we'll see the U.S. dollar weakening.
3: Time to drop them. Okay. And, James, your hotcakes. So, my hotcakes, and I'm going to very slightly disagree with Nick here, is, is it's U.S. value um, or U.S. You know, value stocks, but I would say ex-financials. I'm worried financials are the value trap of this cycle, um, particularly in the U.S. Um, so, 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 that would be the hotcake. Um, and then hot potato... Um, I think I probably said this last time, but but it's got to be Italy in general. I'm really worried about Italy and, and the government's tension with the EU and whether that spills over. So you could just make it Europe. But I think Italian, probably Italian equities at the moment, worry me the most. Italy keeping us up at night. Right, uh, that's it. Dear listener, I hope this has given you an insight
0: into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like any more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. Thank you very much to my guests. Charlotte, Nick, for the first time. James and George in the recording earlier. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next month. But for now, goodbye.